I'm going to try to make it convenient for them. All right, so this week, we are in our series called Blah, 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 Yada, 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 going through the book of Ecclesiastes and looking at um, some human wisdom. And if you haven't been a part of the, if you haven't been around for that, I just want to give a, a brief introduction to this series. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is really, it's an anthology of, uh, of uh, wisdom. And that wisdom, it, a lot of it sounds real good until you really get into it and you discover that it's not really in line with the scriptures. And the function of the, of the book is to illuminate the failure of human wisdom so that we can understand our need for God, our need for God's wisdom. And this week, we're, we're, we're going to finish up in chapter 7, but we're going to reach a, a cusp, a, an edge with Solomon. And, and to illustrate that, I want to I borrow a little bit from um, one of my favorite subjects in school, science. Um, so if you're not, you're not scientific this morning, I'll try to explain it. I, I may not do a terribly good job, so that's okay. Anyways, um, let me ask you a question. How, what makes planets go around the sun? Say it a little louder. Gravity. Um, how does gravity work? Very complex equation, all right? Um, has to do with the mass. And, all right, now, there are, two, there are two ways of viewing gravity. There's what's called Newtonian gravity, which is named after Isaac Newton. And the idea is that you have two objects, all right, in space, and those two objects exert a force on each other um, and that, that, that force kind of holds them in place. So right now, you and I are being accelerated toward the earth at a specific speed by gravity. It's what holds us down. Okay. Um, now, there's the electromagnetic charge, which keeps us from going through the earth. We won't get into that. But, the, um, but we are accelerated toward the earth. Right now, every one of us is, is attracted to the earth, and that's what keeps us down. But each mass in the universe also exerts a gravitational pull on every other mass. So not only are you pulled to the earth, you are also pulled to Ron. Now, hi, Ron. Everybody say hi, Ron. Um, the, now, in Newtonian physics, it's very simple. All right? Everything's a nice straight line. But in the early 20th century, a clerk in Switzerland came up with this amazing, mind-boggling concept called the general theory of relativity. And relativity completely changed the way we understand gravity. Now, for most of us, it still doesn't matter. Things still fall, things still jump, airplanes still fly, the world is good. But Albert Einstein, the Swiss, Swiss clerk, came up with this unbelievable idea that he didn't even win a Nobel Prize for. He won it for his other work, Brownian motion. We won't get into that. Um, but he, Einstein said, you know what? It's not as simple as straight lines. What really happens in the universe, and hold with me on this one, okay? Every mass, every piece of matter in the universe pushes down on what he called this time-space continuum. And it creates a well, it creates a space, a, a kind of a, a curve, a crinkle 
in this continuum. If you imagine the continuum, as, as time and space, as a blanket, okay, um, a, a blanket on a, a, a sheet, a, a, a sheet on a bed, and you drop something on that blanket, what happens to the blanket? You drop a quarter on that blanket. What happens to the blanket around the quarter? It's, it creates a little dent, right? You could take the quarter out and you could see that dent. And what Einstein said was every mass in the universe creates a, a dent in the time-space continuum. And things that go around other things, the moon around the earth, the earth around the sun, the sun around the center of the galaxy, the galaxy around the universe, is actually riding on the lip called the event horizon of that dent. And, and we're not actually, it's not actually that this is attracting this, that there's some kind of, you know, and they're, they're pulling together. Those are sound effects for gravity. That's how it works. In the equations, you actually see, and then, um, this, but it's riding around on that lip. Anything that comes on this side of the lip toward the mass will fall toward the object. So, how many of you remember Skylab? Four, five, six. Some of you lived through it. You should really remember it. What happened to Skylab? Where did Skylab land? Australia. All right, Skylab, basically what happened was Skylab fell off the lip and rotated in and landed in Australia. Um, Apollo 11, however, got up on top of the lip and then fell toward the moon. People say, took a rocket ship to the moon. They didn't actually fire rockets to get to the moon. After they were in orbit, all they did was rotate a little bit and actually got whipped off toward the moon, off the lip. That Newtonian, uh, Einsteinian physics is the reason we traveled to the moon and back. Um, really, really complicated system of mathematics to get into it. I, and I, I hope I explained it pretty well. Um, but this, So that's basically what happens. Things on the event horizon will just keep going around and around and around. Things inside the event horizon will fall toward the mass, and things on the other side will fall toward whatever the next strongest gravitational field is. Um, so this is basically everything in the universe is riding around wrinkles on a blanket. Does that make any sense? All right, this is where science fiction gets in, and you can talk to Doug about traveling through the wrinkles and all that stuff. He, he reads all that stuff. Um, but this, th this, is, this is a basic physics property. It's a basic understanding of physics. You say, why do we bring that up in the book of Ecclesiastes? Because Ecclesiastes chapter 7, these last few verses that we're going to read, Solomon has been fighting his way up the well, and now he is at the event horizon. He has been deconstructing human wisdom. He has been breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down, saying this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and this doesn't work. And now he is at the cusp. He is on the top of the well, and he is going to make a decision. Do I let myself fall back into the mass, fall back into human wisdom, or do I come over the edge and I go forward with something else? Because going forward with something else means that I have to abandon everything that I have covered in the previous seven chapters. I have to abandon all of that human wisdom. I have to be willing to rise up and go boldly where no man has gone before. So let's take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. 
you're visiting with us, you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. Book of Ecclesiastes, kind of open that Bible about halfway through. You should get to the book of Psalms. Proverbs comes after, and then Ecclesiastes is the book after that. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 15. And I want to warn you again, what he, what he says, it, 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 it can be almost sort of true, and then he'll make a statement that you go, wait, that's not true, because he's dealing with human wisdom. Here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness, and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other, the man who fears God will avoid all dreams. Or, you can translate it the other way, the man who fears God will follow both. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Now here, Solomon is coming up to the top of that well. He has broken down all this human wisdom, moving away, saying that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And now he comes to his conclusion, which is a pretty depressing one. He basically says, look, I've seen righteous people die young, and I've seen wicked people die old. So my solution is to just be neither. I am going to, if you, we translate it maybe this way. My goal in life is to be a zero. I don't want to be too good, and I don't want to be too bad. I just want to kind of strike a balance. If I could just get just enough good and just enough bad that I pretty much even out, I will be good. I'll be all set. I will have a happy life. I will, I will be content. And he says this, he says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does not does what is right and never sins. He goes, look, he says, you can't show me somebody who's so good that they've never done anything wrong. So if you're going to do wrong stuff and be condemned for it, you might as well find a good balance. Do some wrong stuff, do some good stuff, middle of the road. Today, or, or yesterday, I was driving down to visit our family and I encountered someone who decided that this was the way to drive. This person, and I won't indicate whether male or female, but they were from Massachusetts. And this person had managed somehow in a three-lane highway to center her enormous vehicle. Oh, did I just say it was a woman? Center her enormous... This was while she was on the phone, by the way. Um, center her enormous vehicle so that the dotted white line passed directly between her axles. And she was cruising down the road like that's where she was supposed to be. She was okay. I'm in a lane, my little putt-putt car, which Nicole and I discussed. Our car has the wimpiest horn ever. <laughs> like, was this supposed to do, annoy them? And she asked me what I wanted. And you know what I want for a horn? wants to buy me a birthday present somewhere along the line greatest birthday present you could ever get me is a foghorn 
When I press the horn in the steering column of my car, I want it to go, and everybody to swerve into the Jersey barriers. That would be beautiful. This woman was driving down the white line. Like this was the way she was supposed to drive. People are swerving around her. She's receiving the Boston salute everywhere you could possibly imagine. It, It just, it was a mess. But she had chosen a path. Now, in the rain, in the fog, you know what she probably was thinking? And I can't imagine what she was actually thinking. But probably she was thinking, I can see the line, so I'm not going to swerve off the road. It was raining pretty heavy. I can see the line, I'm not going to swerve off the road. And as I drove by, I said, and you, this is actually, this is my new catchphrase to keep myself from yelling at people. Sorry, didn't, didn't know it was your universe, didn't mean to intrude. But this is the mentality that we go down the middle. Just find a middle road and go down that middle road. Don't be too good because then you'll, you'll attract attention. Don't be too bad because then God will send you to hell or something. So just kind of find a nice middle road. That's human wisdom. But as Solomon has been coming up out of this well in the previous chapters, he has thrown away human wisdom of wickedness and righteousness over and over and over again. So he basically says, look, the best thing you can do is balance things out. Just kind of, and, and this is the ultimate end of this. He says, just find this. In verse 21, he says, Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now what's he saying? He's saying, look, don't listen to other people um, because they're probably going to curse you. And in reality, you've cursed them before anyway. Everybody's got a little good. Everybody's got a little bad. Just kind of find a balance. That's what he's saying. Now, he is about to take a dramatic right-hand turn. Watch this. This is beautiful. That's how we know the writer of Ecclesiastes was a man. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but that is beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chained. He goes, I tried to find wickedness and folly, and you know what I found? Girl. You don't believe me? Watch what else he says. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, Koheleth, the preacher, that's his title, that's why it's capitalized. This is what I've discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the theme of thing, scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found, God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Now mankind is a, this is is crazy the way he does this, he goes, mankind is a masculine word in here, okay? Now generally the the ideas of men, uh, you see man in the Bible, it's, it's usually applied to the race you know, it's like human beings. It's really kind of the way it should be translated. But this one, he actually says, guys were created to be upright, but men, and that's the gender not specific term for the race, the human race, have gone in search of many schemes. 
I don't even understand where he got this. But his concept is basically, it would be fine if the world was full of men. Women are the problem. What? First of all, that has nothing to do with the rest of what he just said. But secondly, he's just lashing out. What is he doing? What is Solomon doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's come up to the top of that event horizon. And now he is confronted with the flaw of humanity. And what happens when somebody knows that what they believe doesn't work? It's somebody else's fault. Ask LeBron James. All you basketball fans. People LeBron James. LeBron James is a basketball player who every time his team loses, whose fault is it? The rest of the team. The coach. Somebody. Not LeBron because LeBron is perfect. Um, now, some people, some of you may like him. Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Just trust me, NBA players in general, they're a bunch of spoiled brats. Um, but the, this, this guy, this is his attitude. It's somebody else's problem. Well, what happens when you lose everything? You start looking around for who to blame because it certainly wasn't my fault, right? It wasn't me. It must have been somebody else. Rare is the man who actually says this failed because of, because of me, because I did something wrong. It's always somebody else. It's, it's always throwing the blame. And, and, and when we're cornered, when we've got nowhere else to go, Solomon has, has defeated every form of human wisdom that he can possibly imagine. So he lashes out at the last thing he can. Girls. Now, if you don't know the story of Solomon, Solomon apparently had a really, really, really high view of women. He had a thousand of them in his home, between wives and concubines, um, and uh, that's just wives you didn't marry. We won't get into the details of that, but, but um, he had women all over the place. He loved women. The scriptures say he adored his wives, that, that he, you know, talk about ADD, but, um, but he, was, he was just a, he, he was a, a ladies' man. He, he enjoyed Women, he liked the, the relationship with them. He liked to, to listen to them. We read scriptures and we find out that they had a lot of input into his life. In fact, they had so much input that at one point in his life, and you can read this in 1 Kings, toward the end of his reign, Solomon actually abandoned the God of his father David, the, the God of the Bible, and built temples to the gods of his wives because he loved them. He wanted them to be happy. And he figured, hey, if it keeps him happy, it's a good thing. So of course he lashes out this way. It's all the women's fault. Now, ladies, first of all, I, I want to I kind of tell the women in this room something. You, you probably already know this. Um, but I'm just going to reinforce it from a male point of view. When men say stuff, we haven't always thought it through. and we are thinking it through as it's leaving our lips. And as soon as it's out there, we're going, (laughs) and trying to pull it back in because that was not what we meant to say. And and, and this is the problem with with kind of the intergender communication. Guys have a tendency to do that. We throw something out. You know what? If you're a guy, if you're sitting around, and, and guys... Tell me this is, this is right or wrong or indifferent. We're sitting around watching a sports game and somebody says something completely stupid. What do we do? 
we either give them a beat down, which can happen, or we, we make fun of them. This is what guys do. Uh, we were sitting in a game, and um, I, I, I saw a word, D-R-A-U-G-H-T. And I thought that it was pronounced draught. Now, if you don't know, that word is pronounced draft. Why? Because it's British. Um, but I said it, and I'm a pretty intelligent guy, you know, so I'm supposed to know how to pronounce words. I said it, and I cannot tell you, I mean, I got picked on for two weeks about mispronouncing this word. I mean, I'd walk through the door and somebody'd say, quick, close the door, there's a draught. I felt like a moron, but I got what I deserved. So I didn't think to look up the book, to look up the pronunciation of the word. And guys are just like that. Well, because, and, and when we're in a, a, a crisis situation, we have a tendency to lash out, not because we actually think it's anybody's fault, just because that's guys. We, we, we look at it and we go, oh, and then our wives, you know, give us the look and um, we feel stupid. But anyway, um, Solomon happens to do this for posterity he throws it out there and goes it's all women's fault and for three thousand years everybody's going you moron what is your issue but that's what he says why does he say it just to go back why does he say it where is he on his decision here he's right on the event horizon he's got nothing to fall back on and now he is in a position that he has to make a choice Do I let myself fall back into the mass of human wisdom or do I go over the edge, tip just a little bit over the edge and go off boldly where no man has gone before? There's another thinker, a Christian thinker who dealt with this in the book of Romans. I'm not going to get into the details, but the first couple chapters, the Apostle Paul in writing the book of Romans breaks down human wisdom. He deconstructs human religion and he breaks it down and he basically says being a pagan is useless being a jew is useless um, being a good jew is useless and he comes to this event horizon where he has broken everything down he has climbed up to the top of this well and now he has to make a decision where do we go from here and this happens in all of our lives but he's dealing with it on the subject of relating with God and righteousness. And I just want to read to you what's, what um, the Apostle Paul says. Romans chapter 3, he says this. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail... When you judge, I actually picked up a couple verses early, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. He puts that in parentheses. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we say, he's talking about himself, let us do evil that good may result. 
their condemnation is deserved. He basically says, look, he says, when we look at this and we realize that we are genuinely unrighteous, and we're on the cusp, we're on the edge of the event horizon, do we then say, well, actually, my, my wickedness shows that God is good and faithful, so I should continue to be wicked? It's not, un- it's not unlike what Solomon has said in Ecclesiastes. Well, you just kind of get the center line because that's the best you can do. And, and Paul comes to a slightly different conclusion. That, that, but basically, he says, this doesn't work. Here we are on the event horizon. What do we do? How do we decide? Do we say, well, my unfaithfulness, my, my unrighteousness makes God's faithfulness clear so I can fall back into the center mass of sin? Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. He makes that in the first couple chapters. As it is written, he's going to quote the Hebrew scriptures, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear before their eyes. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, and we could substitute for that human wisdom, human religion, my opinion, whatever that says, it says to those who are under the law, those who have fallen back into the mass of human wisdom and human knowledge and and human religion, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by becoming humanly wise, by developing human religion, by walking according to human rules. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. The only function of this this gravity of human wisdom that pulls us down is to make us realize we are stuck in the well and for us to rise up to that event horizon and then we we make the choice. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, apart from human wisdom, apart from human religion, apart from my opinions, has been made known to which the law, now that's the Hebrew scriptures and the prophets, that's the Torah and the Nevim, the the two parts of the Hebrew scriptures, that's how they referred to the Old Testament, testified. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did that to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul falls off the event horizon and takes off full bore where no man has gone before. 
He says, when you finally get to this cusp, when you get to this edge, when you have dug yourself out and deconstructed human wisdom, and you are sitting up at the top and have to decide, do I go back or do I go forward? There's only one ride out, and that is to fall toward Christ. To break that bond that gravity has and to fall toward Jesus Christ. Because He alone is righteousness. He alone is is the the strength to overcome. He alone is true wisdom. So you can either spiral back down into human wisdom, or you can go on into Christ's wisdom, but you can't bring the human part and the gravity from that into the Christ thing. You've got to leave it behind. You want to tell me what the number one flaw of Christianity in the world is today? How Christianity can be as corrupted as sometimes it is? How people can, can huck cheap merchandise and poor theology and people will flock to their congregations by the thousands? Why that continues to be? It is because there are people in the world who are willing, in fact probably a vast majority, who are willing to take their human wisdom and try to drag it with them into the way of Jesus. And while Jesus sometimes recognized things that were true in human wisdom, he never said, go back in there and find something wise and bring it out and I'll tell you whether it's good or not. He says, follow me and I will change you. He said to the disciples, I will make you fishers of men. You think you're a fisherman now? I will make you a fisher of men. He said to the Apostle Paul on Damascus Road, when Paul was headed to Damascus to persecute the church, Jesus said to Paul, as as Paul is in his presence, Jesus said to him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you dragging your religion around when you know what is true? And Paul had to abandon that, that way of life, that path, that journey. And it took a lifetime for him to do it. But because he was committed to following Christ, instead of spiraling back down into human wisdom, it was Paul who toward the end of his life, would, or not actually toward the end during his ministry, he would actually write to a church, he would say, who has bewitched you to bring human action, it's in the book of Galatians chapter 3, bring human wisdom into the church? Who cast a spell on you that said following this teacher or that teacher would bring you closer to Christ? He said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he said to them, I determined to know among you nothing but Christ and Him crucified. He said, I have got the ability, I've got the the qualifications to be a great human teacher, to bring you great human wisdom, to, to give you a good life inside the well, but I want you to go boldly beyond. I would challenge you, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian today, and, and I don't know everybody here, I don't know your hearts and your minds, and I don't know where you are. Because it is not about whether you're in or out of the Christian circle, it is about whether you are moving toward Christ or you are spiraling back toward the mass and strength and power of human wisdom. And I would encourage you, that maybe there's something in your life, something going on, in your world, or, or maybe you're at that cusp at something in your life, and you're saying, you're saying, man, I, 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 I'm, it's deconstructed, it's fallen apart, it doesn't work, I don't understand, I, 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 there's something, I, I, and you're on that cusp, you get to choose on that cusp. You can fire the thrusters a little bit and drop back into human wisdom, 
or you can fall over the event horizon and go with Christ. I've got to tell you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a pastor, as an elder, as a teacher, the best thing in the world you can do is to just fall toward Christ. You say, what do you mean fall toward? Isn't there, there rules or disciplines? or I, Shouldn't I suddenly start doing something? Should I, I mean, do I get a pin or something? Here's what we do. We let go. And we let him take over. The scriptures actually say in the gospels, Jesus actually says that we will be drawn to him if we will release. If we, rather than pursuing human wisdom, we will just let him draw us. He will draw us and he will land us and he will guide us. And there's so much fear of letting go because we as human beings, we are Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 through 7, holding on to human wisdom. We say, well, well, but we've got to make good decisions. You absolutely do. And that's why we must fall toward Christ. We must endlessly and, and full on passionately pursue what it is that he desires us to be. You know, people say, well, you know, uh, it's hard for me to read the Bible. It's hard for me to, to pray. How can you follow Christ and not know where he's going? You, you, you need to fall toward him. The scriptures need to be a part of your life. The fellowship of the church needs to be a part of your life. Why? Because we are falling toward Christ. And I got to tell you, I'd rather fall together than apart. I'd rather be able to look as we kind of come over that event horizon and start falling toward the orbit of Jesus. And, and I, I would love to spend my entire life falling toward Him and orbiting around Him. I'd kind of like to look to one side and see some of you and look to another side and see some others of you and look back a little bit and see somebody we haven't seen before falling toward Christ and look ahead and see Lynn and Jerry because they're falling faster than us. No, uh, <laughs> just kidding. That's because they were missionaries. They got an accelerator pack. No, um, they, but we are we are we we want to be moving toward him. I close with this because we're we're all uh, Westerners here. I want to share just a little bit of an Eastern idea in the Eastern church early on. And by Eastern, I don't mean Japan. I mean, Asia Minor and, and Syria and that area, Turkey. Um, very early on in their theology, they adopted a word, a Greek word, synergia, um, to define how they walk with Christ. Now, today, the church has been, has been thousands of years of history and, and stuff, and there's good and bad about that, but some of the early writers of the early church said this, that they desired not to conform to a pattern of Christianity, but rather to enter into synergia, that they be joined with Christ and move with Him. And their confidence with, to Christ was so strong that they believed as long as they were moving with Him and being drawn by Him and drawn by His power, they would conform to the scriptural model. That they didn't have to worry about hating their neighbor if they were willing to die for their neighbor. That they didn't have to worry about stealing if all of their possessions were God's in the first place. 
that they wouldn't have to worry about coveting their coveting another man's wife if they they were so engaged with Christ and their wife was journeying with them that they were intimately drawn to God together. They would be drawn together. And I would contend that that picture shows us the righteousness of mankind better than pretty much any image that we have portrayed in the Scriptures. Or not the Scriptures, in our culture. Because that picture is in the Scriptures. Sojourning, journeying, fellowshipping. All of those are images of us coming closer to Christ and being drawn to Him. And in being drawn to Him, we are drawn together and we are drawn into righteousness. Are we falling toward Christ? Are we sitting on the event horizon? Are you falling back toward the mass? i got to tell you, when you get to that event horizon and you fall back to the mass, it's a lot harder to dig yourself back out. I would much rather be falling toward Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, it is very common to say that you are the center of our church and the center of our faith and our Savior and our Master. It's so common that it becomes cliche. We slap your name on so many things that we do in human wisdom without ever actually asking you. Jesus, help us to fall toward you. To release the human wisdom that binds us from faith in the one who conquered death. And the one who loved us so much that he was willing and able to take our sin on himself. Jesus, you are our center, our son. May we always fall toward you. God, we will be distracted and we will be drawn off from time to time and help us as followers, as we journey together, as we walk with one another, to encourage each other, to equip one another, to turn each other around, to continue our journey toward you. Jesus, thank you for being who you are because you are the only one who could be. And you are the only answer to our human struggles, brokenness, and blame. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you did what needed to be done. And he did what needed to be done. We ask for your spirit's guidance to continue to journey with him. We pray this in Jesus' name.